This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's John Bank Centre for Astrophysics. For more information, see johncast.net. Hello. Um, firstly, please introduce yourself. Yes, good morning. I'm Simon Johnston. I'm from the CSIRO in Sydney, Australia. Okay, wonderful. And you came here this week to give us a talk about pulsars? Well, maybe I could tell you a bit about where I started off okay. um, as, a, as an astronomer. Yes. Because, okay. in fact, I did my PhD here at Jodrell Bank uh, way back, starting in 1987. Um, and when I was there, I met Andrew Lyon, who was even then a distinguished professor. And he offered me this great uh, PhD in pulsar astronomy, and I thought, this sounds fantastic. And since then, I've been doing pulsars ever since. So what particular aspect of that have you been working on recently, then? So recently, I've been trying to understand how they work, how pulsars actually work. So a lot of people use pulsars as tools. For example, pulsars are very great clocks, because they, they tick on a regular basis once per rotation of the pulsar. And you can use the pulsars as a clock to do lots of very interesting experiments. But the problem is the clock is not exactly perfect. And I'm trying to understand what is it about pulsars that makes the clock not very perfect. And that was the subject of my talk this week. Very good. So what were a few of the things you pointed out then that made the pulsar not perfect? So the textbook picture of a pulsar, um, if you want to think of it this way, is just you have a bar magnet and it's rotating in a vacuum. That's the simplest picture. And under that picture, you can understand how it should get slower, and you should understand how it spins. But the reality, of course, is that a pulsar is not a bar magnet. It's got all sorts of weird things associated with it. In particular, it's got a big magnetosphere. That magnetosphere can be filled with plasma, and that plasma has an effect on the rotation of the star. In addition, the star is not really a perfect sphere. It can deviate from a sphere, so it has some ellipticity and that ellipticity can change with time, and that affects the rotation of the star. And then finally, the you can think of the pulsar in some ways a bit like an egg. It has a very thin crust of material, and then the inside of a pulsar is generally thought to be a superconducting uh, liquid. So it's a bit like an egg in that sense, in that you've got a crust and a liquid interior, and the liquid is not perfectly coupled to the to the shell. And so that decoupling between the shell and the liquid interior also causes irregularities in the spin. Okay, so then next question I suppose is how do these irregularities show themselves? What do you see? So instead of seeing a regular tick of the pulse, sometimes the pulse arrives a little bit early, sometimes it arrives a little bit late, and sometimes there's a big discontinuity in when it arrives, and you can think of those a little bit like earthquakes. There's a sudden violent thing that affects the surface of the star, and that affects the spin rate. And suddenly, the pulsar starts spinning at a, at a faster rate than it was doing before the glitch. Okay, your job then is to find out sort of why these things are happening. So not only why they're happening, but what's the size of them? Um, do they occur in all pulsars the same? And in fact, we found that it's different in young pulsars. Young pulsars have much more activity, they glitch much more often, they're much more irregular than the very old pulsars. And that's probably something to do with their internal temperature. So that's another thing I'm looking at, is how much the irregularity is affected by age, for example. Uh, okay, so what have you been finding out so far, then? So this, this has implications for the detection of gravitational waves with pulsar timing, which is one of the, the big projects in pulsar astronomy. So there, what we're looking for is, uh, we're looking for supermassive black holes in orbit about each other. And that can affect the timing of the pulsar. 
But that kind of affects the timing of the pulsar in sort of the same way as these irregularities can affect it. So what you want to do is try and understand the irregularities so you can find this gravitational wave emission. Okay, so you don't want to mistake gravitational waves for what is an irregularity. That's exactly right, yes. Okay. You just talk then a little bit more about how you've been trying to do this, how you've been working. So I've been... um, I'm in uh, in Australia and I mainly use the Parkes radio telescope which is a 64 meter diameter radio telescope about 350 kilometers west of Sydney uh, so that's the main instrument that I use and I've been monitoring a group of about 200 pulsars over the last 10 years to see what they're doing and this is all different types of pulsars both young pulsars and old pulsars just to get a big sample to see if I can tell the difference between you know the various subsets. So I monitor these uh, on a regular basis, and then of course I set my grad students to work in analyzing the data and coming up with the latest results. Good stuff. So on a slightly side note to that then, how do you know that which ones are the young ones and which ones are the old ones? So the young ones are generally faster rotating. <coughs> We know of the crab pulsar, which is the youngest pulsar we know, 950 years old, um, and it rotates 33 times per second. So it's a very fast one. Uh, so generally the spin period tells you a little bit about how old they are, but also the faster they slow down, the younger they also are. So it's a combination of their spin rate and the slowdown rate that tells you the age. So one of the, thing, one of the things we are looking at is, of course we can only observe over a time span of 10 years or so. So we can see how pulsars are irregular over that space of 10 years. But what we really want to know is what are they doing on a timescale of a million years, which is kind of the lifetime of the stars. Now, of course, we can never observe one single pulsar directly all the way from birth to death. But of course, the beauty of astronomy is that you've got typically a lot of objects. And so you see them in all stages of their evolution. So you can see young ones and old ones. And then you can and middle-aged ones, and then you've got to try and figure out how they get from young to middle-aged to old in their spin. In their spin. Uh, so I remember you showed the picture of you growing up to demonstrate that. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, if you think about a human lifespan, and if you were a sociologist, you could take a baby at birth and you know watch that baby growing up to middle age and old age. So you could do that with a single object. But you know, in astronomy, this takes forever. So it's like looking at a crowd of people, for example and trying to determine if there was, say, a relationship between the age of a person and the height of a person, just by looking at big crowds of people and getting big numbers to, to help you do this. Okay. And so has that been rather successful then? Yes. I mean, our sample, of course, is, you know, it's only a hundred and something pulsars. It's not really a huge sample. But, of course, you don't have an infinite amount of observing time. There's only so much observing you can do. There's only much, so much your student can put up with when it comes to <laughs> data processing and data reduction. So you, you kind of do what you can. And then from that sample of 100, you try and infer something about the population as a whole. Okay. And are you looking to get a larger sample in the future then? Well, we are. So the Meerkat telescope, which is, uh, which is now open for business in South Africa and doing a lot of interesting observing, our plan there is to observe a thousand pulsars on a regular basis with that telescope because that telescope has a lot of sensitivity and should enable us to do that and if you have these very large samples not only can you figure out what's going on but in a large sample you always have a couple of very weird objects that are doing strange things and they're interesting to look at in their own right okay 
So have you found any sort of strange, interesting objects in your own sample as well? Because in a hundred you might find something odd. Yes, well, there is there is one that seems to be a little bit odd. It's behaving in a slightly strange way. And if you kind of work out the numbers, it's 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 kind of consistent with having a a companion which is about the mass of the sun, but which takes about a hundred years to orbit the pulsar. And so this is quite unusual because generally you don't see these very wide orbits. It's very difficult to see. If you only observe for a year, it's hard to see. A, it's hard to detect a hundred-year orbit. But we think we might be seeing this, and so that's definitely worth following up and seeing if that's real or not. Yes. So you said you're a PhD student here. So can you just give us the brief sort of when and what you did first. So I, I, I started back here in uh, 1987. Was the year I started my PhD. And at that time, of course, the Turing Building wasn't here, and all the Jodrell Bank students actually lived out at Jodrell Bank on the site. They didn't live in in Manchester in the town. So that, of course, was a very interesting experience. We had a we had a very large house, almost under the telescope, which had uh, ten PhD students in there. It was it was a bit like Big Brother before its time. Um, it was a very interesting experience to to live there with ten other students. And Jodrell Bank has a beautiful arboretum. Uh, next to the telescope and in fact we could walk through the arboretum into work in the mornings and walk back in the evenings generally in our welly boots because the weather's because ah, yes. it was always raining and muddy but that was that was also an interesting experience so uh, I started there and then about a year after I started I was offered a PhD by Andrew Lyne uh, part of the reason I took that PhD in fact was um, because he also said I could go to Australia, go and visit Australia, which at that time seemed like an exotic location to me to go there. So I presume that had the better weather then. It definitely had the better weather. In fact, I was so hooked that um, on Australia that I went as soon as I finished my PhD here in 1991. I went to Sydney on a postdoc, which at that time was for only 18 months, and I've been there ever since. Wow! But you know, my experience at Jodrell, I. I I really enjoyed my PhD here. One of the reasons was because you got to sort of live and work right under the radio telescope. So you could always see it moving, you could always see it doing things. It seemed to be a very exciting um, part of radio astronomy was to actually live at a working observatory and see how it operated. Uh, I suppose that's continued since you're now working with parks. Yeah, well, that's right. When I, I mean, when I went to Australia as part of my PhD... Um, at Parks, they are, the set, setup is slightly different. At Jodrell Bank, you have operators who do the ob- observations for you from their control room. At the Parks Telescope, the observer is actually in charge of everything, driving the telescope, doing the observing, collecting the data. So, you know, as a young PhD student, to me, it was sort of miraculous that I was put in charge of this massive beast of engineering, and I was allowed to drive it around the sky and point it at my favorite object. That was that definitely really turned me on to astronomy as a career, I would say. Yeah, that that's wonderful. As you say, Jodrell Bank, they use someone whose job it is to sort of work the telescope for you. So there you had to understand, especially back in those days where there was a lot of analogue patching to be done for the down conversion and so on, you were constantly plugging things in and plugging things out. So you certainly learnt a lot about how telescopes worked and how the whole signal chain worked, just due to the fact that you were there and you had to do it. And even as a student, your supervisor would go off to bed and say, it's all yours, all night. Let's deal with that. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So that was a great learning experience. 
Another one. What was your sort of what were the results you got at the end of that then? So my PhD was actually a survey for pulsars using the Parkes telescope. So we were looking for pulsars. At that time, there was only several hundred pulsars known. This was only you know twenty years after the discovery. Um, and it was understood that the youngest pulsars lived right in the galactic plane, and so that you had to go up to high frequencies in order to find them. So we did the first high frequency survey using the Parkes telescope. That was that was my PhD, and we found forty seven pulsars, something like that, including very young ones that later turned out to be gamma ray emitters, which is a whole other part of the research I do, actually following on from that. And so doing the survey was great because you you got to survey the sky. You got to look at the data, and you got to find a new pulsar for the first time. What could be better than that when you're a young student? So you, you mentioned briefly ones that were gamma-ray emitters. So it turns out that the very youngest pulsars that emit in the radio also emit in gamma rays. And at that time, um, there was a gamma-ray satellite that had just been launched, and it, it detected six pulsars, and four of those were actually pulsars that I found as part of my PhD. And partly on the basis of that, uh, funding was obtained for a new gamma-ray telescope that was then launched in 2007, the the Fermi satellite. And it's since discovered more than 200 pulsars, something like 250 pulsars in the gamma-rays. But part of that's due to the links with the radio observatories, including Jodrell Bank, the Effelsberg Telescope in Germany, and Parkes Telescope in Australia, in order for us to provide them with radio data so they can find the pulsars in the gamma-rays. Okay, so there's a kind of continuity there. Yeah, so you're working together with them. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Then that was an in, that was an interesting talk. Was there any sort of last comments about sort of what you're doing now that you'd like to make? Well, I always enjoy coming back to Manchester. I yeah. try and visit on a sort of a yearly basis. I'm I'm working with both the lecturers here and some of the students, which is which is always great. So it's always good to be back. Oh, wonderful! Thank you. Thank okay, you very, much. very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on here.